0: After a pause for the worldwide pandemic, the motion picture industry is rapidly gearing up for a dramatic close in 2021. Between now and the end of the year, theaters in North America and Europe will be premiering much-anticipated and often delayed releases of, say, the new James Bond film, and the much-anticipated epic Dune, and Spider- man No Way Home. There is, of course, a lot of security around these digital releases. For example, there's watermarks, digital certificates, and even keys that decode the encrypted copies of the films in specific theaters for specific periods of time. Yet somewhere in China, one digital projection server slipped through the cracks, and for a period of about three years, allowed pirates to make pristine copies of first-run digital feature films. This ghost server was actually notable during the Chinese New Year in 2019 when 3 of the largest films in Chinese cinema that year were set to premiere. However, one of the most anticipated films was spread online for free, which quickly drains its box office receipts. This loss among others caused law enforcement in China to spin up a massive joint law enforcement operation given the code name of 215 after February 15th, the Chinese New Year holiday that year. And over the next 90 days, this 215 task force, headed by the Ministry of Public Security, would uncover a sophisticated and shadowy network of private cinemas located throughout China, and would result in one of the largest pirate film takedowns in history. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm telling the story of Ghost One, a piece of motion picture projection hardware with a digital certificate that simply should not exist, that was responsible for some of the most pristine pirated films to date. And it's also the story of the Two Horses Gang, and how they created a shadowy network of private cinemas in China. And finally, we'll discuss why you'll have to go back to the theater if you want to see that latest installment of James Bond. In this day and age, piracy of digital motion pictures is not supposed to happen. Hollywood Studios spent a decade creating a robust hardware certification process that includes military-grade encryption with a complicated set of keys, all to protect the latest blockbuster releases. Technically, getting a perfect digital copy of any first-run feature film off of a digital server should not be possible. And yet we have the story of Ghost One. And it would not be possible without a journalist who first wrote about it in 2019.
1: I'm Patrick von Sohofsky, the editor of Celluloid Junkie, which is an online business publication about theatrical exhibition industry. So no movie reviews, gossip, but we talk about the kind of things behind the scenes in the cinema. So technology, business, um, people, that kind of thing.
0: Patrick was in a great position to understand and explain the story.
1: I was covering the Asian and Chinese cinema market for five years while based in Singapore, and that's how I came to know the the Chinese market very well, including uh, reading things in original language press not because I know how to speak Mandarin, but through um, learning how to use Google Translate to my advantage. So I've been daily monitoring um, Chinese media for cinema news stories, as I do in many other languages, you know, Japanese, French, German, you name it. And this story came along. and, And as a journalist, you're praying that at least once in your lifetime, you'll have a you know, this this great scooper, you'll be the first to report on, on the big story. And this was that story. I mean, it's amazing that to me that it still hasn't been that widely reported in English language because it is the biggest takedown of a piracy ring in any country at any point in history. I mean, it is truly breathtaking in scope. Since 2020, China has become the world's largest box office in terms of ticket sales. This is the first non-U.S. country to achieve this status. So China's cinema market has really, I wouldn't say come out of nowhere, but it has grown exponentially. I mean, there was literally double-digit growth for a good decade at its peak. And these were brilliant new multiplex. I mean, when you saw, if you saw the inside of some of them, they knock the socks out of what we have here in Europe or, or North America Um, They cater to the new rich middle class and they want IMAX, you know, just as much as they want a Gucci handbag. So there's been a parallel growth obviously in Chinese films, but it's harder to ramp up a film industry, especially when you're competing against something like Hollywood that has been perfecting its art for a hundred years. So they're very much dependent on um, foreign films as well, especially Hollywood films, but they try to restrict it. So they have an import quota of 36 films that can be shown on a split revenue basis, which is standard everywhere else in the world. Think about that.
0: Only 36 foreign films each year get shown in China. That means Hollywood has to compete with every other country in the world for a spot. While limits such as these are true in other countries, you can only imagine the theatrical losses in global sales if your Hollywood movie doesn't make the cut. For example, Black Widow was not slated to run in China, at least not on the main screens. It's such a big market that some U.S. motion picture studios have been accused of looking the other way on human rights abuses around, say, the Uyghur Muslims in Western China, just so that their American films can be secured a release in the lucrative Chinese market. Even so, there remain other legal ways to get your film distributed in China.
1: Apart from that, you can do special deals of just paying a lump sum and then you get to show the film however much you like. But yes, so you don't get to show just anything in uh, Chinese cinemas. It is tightly controlled by the government, by the censors. Certain topics are off limits, so not just things that put the China Communist Party in a bad way. Um, It's funny to know that, for example, they have a big thing of they don't like films about time travel. And they don't like films about spirituality, afterlife, or ghosts, to the point that even the new Ghostbusters comedy did not get a release in China because it did not, you know, find favor with the authorities there. So the films, some films, you know, most of the big films from Hollywood do tend to get released, The Avengers and so on, but... Even something like uh, Marvel's Shang-Chi now has not gotten a release date for various reasons because it is the world's biggest cinema market in terms of number of screens as of three years ago. Because of the pandemic last year, it became the biggest cinema market by box office too. So China is a cinema market force to be reckoned with. Given the tight control on the Chinese box office, there are illegal alternatives
0: to getting that popular motion picture into the Chinese market.
1: Obviously, they have a very uh, varied landscape in terms of the ecosystem. So the smaller towns, they even have drive-in cinemas there. And let's face it, when there's so much growth and there's so much competition as well. So, you know, there's a new multiplex coming into even small villages and that puts the existing cinemas under pressure. And that means that there could be and there has been a lot of fraud and ways of cinemas just trying to stay alive by um, not reporting ticket sales by um, involving dubious practices such as allowing producers to buy out entire screenings uh, just so that they can show that their film is number one and it inflates the share price of their production company. It's, it's been a bit of a wild east, even as the Chinese Communist Party is obviously keen to clamp down on nefarious activities such as that.
0: The story of Ghost Number One begins with the release of an American spy movie starring Brad Pitt. It's called Allied.
1: There's no easy way to say what we're about to say. We suspect your wife
0: is a German spy. It's insane. If you are right, all this will be forgotten. But if she is, you will execute her with your own hand. And if you do not comply, you'll be hanged. Directed by Robert Zemeckis and written by Stephen Knight, Allied, from Paramount Pictures, had a $113 million budget. That meant that the studio spent that much on both making and advertising the film. The film, however, only grossed a paltry $40 million in domestic sales and $119 million worldwide, meaning that it barely broke even with costs and therefore was considered a flop. Studios set expectations on films based on past performance. So when they fall short, they start looking for the reason why. And one of those reasons may have been the ready availability of high-quality pirated copies of Allied. One pirated copy of extreme high quality was singled out by a Chinese government official.
1: So there was an engineer at the Chinese propaganda department, which sounds scary, but really it's just a media Uh, control department and he was at a quality inspection uh, level and he came across because he was looking at all these pirated copies that were turning up online and he found one that was pretty much pristine. Watermarks in the pirated copy
0: of this film revealed the theater and the projector responsible for the illegal copy.
1: When they found out what the um, server number was and they went to that cinema, that cinema had closed down a long time ago. That server had vanished. And in theory, in theory, it should not be able to play out films because it had been blacklisted.
0: But this blacklisted server was only getting started. In fact, three weeks later, five new pirated films appeared
1: online using the exact same server. Somebody had found a way to effectively um, bypassed the security, the built-in security that was supposed to be, you know, hacker-proof in a way that enabled it to create, you know, perfect HD copies of films without being traceable. And that's when the police and the authorities nicknamed it Ghost Number One.
0: Motion picture piracy is not new. It's just that the quality of the pirated films has gotten much better. And it seems it has something to do with the transition from 35mm to digital, which was supposed to reduce, if not remove, piracy altogether.
1: And you're right to ask this point, because this is really the genesis of the story. So 35mm film, not just for for filming things, but for distributing and showing them, has been an incredibly persistent standard. I mean, there is no other um, medium in audiovisual history that has lasted as long as 35 millimeter did. And it's universal across the globe, and it's, you know, lasted for the better part of 100 years. Until fairly recently, films
0: in theaters were made of celluloid, plastic with silver emulsion on one side. Mind you, this was a huge, industry you had the studios themselves which made the final cut of the negative and then you had these labs such as deluxe and technicolor which created thousands of copies of the film on metal reels these then had to be shipped individually to theaters around the world and the theaters often had to have people in the projection booths just to make sure that the film was running that the bulb didn't burn out and that the celluloid didn't break as it whizzed by at 24 frames per second so transitioning from this world with all those people to something else, that was pretty scary for the film
1: industry. When the time came to replace it, which was the, late, the very late 1990s, Uh, And really uh, there had been testing for a long time, but George Lucas really kicked it off when he said that the first of the new Star Wars films was gonna be shown in digital in four locations, and he was gonna make future films in digital. So no other big filmmaker has ever said uh, that, I'm gonna project my film in digital because nobody thought it was good enough. And so really he brought these efforts from behind the scenes by a lot of tech companies into the forefront.
0: We can argue offline whether The Phantom Menace was a great film or not, but the fact remains George Lucas was a big enough name in Hollywood to hold the entire Star Wars franchise hostage and force an entire industry to change the way in which films were distributed and streamed.
1: And then there was about a 10-year period of testing, experimentation, making sure that film uh, was being replaced by something not just as good in terms of the visual quality, but something better. Because there's no point just, you know, swapping um, like for like in digital. And the Hollywood studios spent a tremendous amount of time and effort to get it right.
0: Theaters run films from a variety of different studios. That means that if one studio is demanding a change to digital, then maybe the other studios need to get involved as well.
1: And what's interesting is that if you think about it, the Hollywood studios, we think of them as a monolith over there in in Los Angeles, but really they're they're, six, seven companies that hate each other with a passion, really wouldn't want to do anything to help each other unless their lives depended on it, but it did in this case. So they've come together three times in modern history to agree on something. One was the fight against piracy. Second time was the DVD standard. And the third one was the agreement on how to transition from 35 millimeter film to digital, pretty much every other technology question, they've fallen out and had difference of opinions. You know, the HD DVD versus Blu-ray, you name it, they don't agree on things uh, customarily. But they did because the transition from film to digital was so important. Although 35 millimeter film is brittle and clunky
0: didn't stop people from creatively finding ways to make copies of these films,
1: particularly in the 80s and 90s. 35mm is obviously unencrypted. And there were instances where there were literally pirates who rented a van or had a delivery van that normally took the film prints from the film laboratory to the airport. And they would have a scanner a flatbed scanner on the back of the truck and they would copy the film as it was driving to the airport and get a copy that way because it could, because there's nothing protecting a 35 millimeter print apart from you could put in some dots sort of vaguely identifying with digital. What you can do is not only can you encrypt the film file to a military grade standard. I mean, we're talking, You know, things that would take you decades to decrypt. But secondly, you could also trace it forensically. So even if a version is camcorded in a cinema, you can extract that invisible watermark that will tell you which cinema, which screen, what day and what time. And this also happened with the Academy
0: Awards. Each year, pristine copies of nominated films, or what they're called screeners, were sent to Academy members on DVD. Well, one of the recipients released their copy to the internet. The only thing is, the watermark was specific to each individual screener receiving a copy.
1: Yeah, there's always the weakest link, and it's always a a human factor involved. And yes, the, the watermark enabled that screener. So obviously, another way of easily getting your hands on it. And they have been able to trace that. And now they're doing a pretty good job of electronically. So even if it doesn't prevent the piracy, It tracks the piracy, and that way they've been able to close down cinemas or uh, tighten the grip on cinemas that were the source of pirated prints uh, in digital copies. So digital enabled studios a higher degree of security and protection for their first-run films than 35mm did.
0: In order to transition from 35 millimeter to digital, the Hollywood studios spent millions of dollars and roughly a decade codifying standards that would be universal in how films would be screened into the future.
1: But what I should mention again about the Hollywood studios is so when they decided to get together and actually work together on agreeing on a standard for transitioning to digital, they wrote a document together called uh, the DCI Specification, so the Digital Cinema Initiative Specification. This document ran to about 180 pages, and it covered everything from the resolution to the kind of formats, widescreen, how to encompass that audio, um, metadata description, You know the MXF wrapper for the uh, digital cinema package, But out of those 180 pages, about 75% of that pages were devoted to security and encryption. So that shows you just how important it was. I'm not saying that, you know, 7 or 5.1 channel audio wasn't important, but they, they covered that pretty efficiently in just, you know, a few dozen pages.
0: So there's still some cost in shipping these hard drives to each projector.
1: The obvious thing is, is to point to savings. And yes, every year they spend um, millions and millions with deluxe and Technicolor to make these bulky thirty-five millimeter prints, shipping the thirty-five millimeter prints, disposing thirty-five millimeter prints. Um, but really, they wanted to safeguard and also. Um, future-proof the new technology. And one of the ways they do is that by going digital, they could do things that they couldn't do with 35-millimeter prints. Distributors
0: send a hard drive with the encrypted film known as the Digital Cinema Package, or DCP,
1: to each individual cinema. So they didn't quite get rid of the physical aspect, but instead of bulky um, film reels that could weigh 60, 80 pounds, they now had a just you know a portable hard drive that could be FedExed to the site. But yes, the digital cinema packages, the files, were still anywhere between 50 gig and, you know, 200, 300 gig, depending on how many subtitles, languages, versions were packed in there. Um, obviously, a feature of compression, so computer animation would make a much smaller file. But even the smallest files would be even 30, 40 gigs, and you couldn't do that over satellite, over or there wasn't even fiber back then. So, yeah, it was hard drives sent to cinemas.
0: Distributors separately send an encryption key that unlocks the film for a specific server-projector combo during a set period of time. This required changes to the theatrical
1: hardware. The security aspect of the hardware of cinemas is universal, and there are several components to it, because obviously there's the media block and player, and then there's a projector. Previously, they tended to be uh, separate uh, pieces of equipment. There had to be a secure link between them as well. These days, the media player tends to be built into the projector unit as well. So it's more of a secure environment. But at least initially, they were so cutting edge. And and these things were huge, um, expensive uh, replacements that the projector unit and the server unit were separate. So if the
0: individual films are watermarked and the individual projection units are fingerprinted as well, then the digital key only works with a particular film on a specific projector and only for a specific length of time.
1: So the server unit or the media playback unit had a um, certificate. So each one had a unique certificate. And the idea of how films would be played out is that each one would be issued with a key delivery message, a KDM, that would be unique for that film and that media player. And what that meant was this was another benefit to the Hollywood studios. They could say, I will give you the rights to playback Fast and Furious 7 or 8 in your cinema, but you will have this key for exactly two weeks. And after that, it expires. And that copy on your media player will be useless until they issue you with new keys. So it gave them a greater degree of control as well. In this new system, the
0: KTMs were supplied separately. The problem was back in 2000, some of these
1: theaters still didn't have internet access the sheer number of um, KDMs and the logistical effort, this is not something that is easily automated as well. You have to remember initially, because of how early on it was, people literally had to um, get a KDM email to them. They would put it on a USB, and then they would plug it into the media player to download the KDMs. Now, some of these cinemas, you have to remember, they weren't the most technically sophisticated in the 90s and the early 2000s. I know stories of people who had to go down to the Starbucks to get onto Wi-Fi because there was no internet in their actual cinema. Uh, there they downloaded the KDMs, put them on the USB drive, and then walked back across the road to the cinema and plugged it in. Yeah, There weren't phone lines connected. So it's it's been a, a culture change, shall we say, it, for cinemas. And therefore, there's never going to be complete automation, reliability, or ability to control and have overview over which units are um, active, are approved, and are located where in the world. And there was a bit of a to and fro between the cinemas. because You could set that time period for those keys down to, you know, two hours on a specific date Um, for a site. They might give you some Um, extra time to test it, to QC the film beforehand, but it's a hard cutoff point in terms of the timing. And occasionally it came back to bite them. I remember when the second Star Wars of the new Star Wars films uh, that George Lucas premiered, it was running in Odeon Leicester Square, which is the flagship cinema in London. I mean, it is the red carpet destination here. And they were so paranoid about Uh, the film running well in the first week. So they had two projectors running in digital in tandem. So at least if something went wrong with one, they'd switch over to the other one. And then they both went down at the same time because somebody had set the KDM parameters to West Coast time rather than London Greenwich Mean Time. So these tiny things, you know, they learn from it and, and then they start tweaking and saying, right, if the film has started, we'll let it finish playing even if the Time on the keys run out, but it is incredibly strict uh, controls that these uh, new digital tools enabled the studios to have. Because obviously there were potentials for this going wrong, film stopping halfway through the last show and so on. So they built in a tiny bit of leeway, but really whoever controls the key distribution controls the play out of the film. And the key distribution is built on a list of all the certificates out there for all the servers in all the cinemas.
0: Suffice it to say, there was a digital transition period with the hardware as well, when older units were still out in the world. While the industry could blacklist these older units, a flaw in the software made it possible for what the Chinese referred to as resurrecting the corpse, or in more prosaic technical terms, Cloning.
1: The cloning thing has been addressed. Like I said, for more recent equipment, um, the only way to be absolutely sure it doesn't happen is really to track down and remove um, all of the old piece of equipment, as well as constantly, you know, updating and keeping an eye on the uh, trusted devices list and for key issues. But we have to remember, managing keys is a nightmare at the best of times because there are You know, when you have a new film coming out, such as we have James Bond coming out in the UK here this week, um, it is going out to so many different cinemas. It's also going out in so many different formats. And so keeping a track of, you know, who do we have an agreement with? What's, um, you know, what's um, the status of there's equipment that gets swapped out. And what nobody wants, neither cinemas nor the distributors, is to have a dark screen because that means lost revenue for both of them. So they always allow a bit of uh, a leeway. There's always, um, you know, okay, we will police it afterwards and then you'll get a smack on the finger or you'll be taken off the list if this wasn't followed. On this,
0: Patrick is very hesitant to continue.
1: And I have to be careful when we get into, um, you know, discussing these kind of things, because this is obviously an exploit that was unique to the first generation of equipment that came out very close to the finalization of the specifications that Hollywood put together and these are not exploits you would be able to do with more recent generations of hardware. But unfortunately, not all first-generation equipment has been retired. There are still copies out there. In theory, I know of ways that you know things could be circumvented, so we have to be mindful of not wanting to obviously create a manual for neurodwellers um, to try to copy this. So
0: at some point in the transition, there was a flaw that allowed someone to change the identity of the projector and therefore change even the protection built into the digital film itself.
1: Most of the, uh, these things have been plugged, but yes, uh, there were ways of exploiting flaws in not so much the specification, but maybe how it had been implemented early on, which allowed, like I said, the manipulation of uh, the identity, you know, removal of the watermark and the timestamp.
0: I don't know about you, but this flaw in this transition from 35mm to digital seems like a perfect opportunity for organized crime to step in. In this case, it happened in a working-class town immediately west of the North Korean border.
1: So this is where it gets really fascinating because it uh, is a great story of this criminal enterprise that um, started with two really um, low-life, small-time operators who were um, operating, who were running a drive-in cinema in uh, Anshan City, which is you know a rundown steel town uh, on the border to North Korea. It's it's you know it, it's the sort of thing post-industrial thing you'd find in you know in Pittsburgh, or it was twinned with Sheffield in UK. And so his name was Mr. Ma Mu. Uh, Ma being the surname. So he teamed up with an old classmate called Mr. Ma Song. There's a lot of Chinese names here, but the thing to remember is they were the two Ma's, or therefore they became known as the two horses gang because Ma is also the Chinese character for horse. So Mr. Ma and Mr. Ma dreamt up this new business plan for their uh, dri- failing drive in cinema that they were going to show first-run films, but they weren't going to pay for them. They bought this server Um, from a cinema, and they paid about 7,000 US dollars for it. It was a first-generation server to show um, digital films, and it had the serial number A15591. This was the server that
0: had been blacklisted after pirated copies of Allied first appeared a year earlier.
1: And like I said, this uh, server had effectively been bricked, because it had previously been used, and that's probably why it was available to sell, because cinema had gone out of business. It had been identified uh, a year previously as a source of pirated films, so that's why it was uh, taken off the uh, trusted devices list for creating these uh, KDMs. So the person who'd bought it had bought a useless uh, server, because it was basically a big letter press. No one was going <laughs> to issue film, because the certificates are hardwired, supposedly hardwired into it. And so this is when they got the idea of trying to find a way uh, how to hack into the server. They found a way to enable or to found an engineer who could clone a certificate from another server and so therefore um, assume the identity of um, a legitimate server and a legitimate source. And so they then got a new certificate from a server with a serial number a 03783. But in theory, they could have kept cloning certificates. And they got this new certificate by uh, sending somebody into a legitimate cinema in Tang County under the pretext of equipment maintenance. So, you know, this fake engineer goes into the cinema, clones the digital certificates, and then downloads the account and password for the KDM storage server. And what's remarkable is, is that they succeeded with relatively low-tech approach to it. I mean, this wasn't some super sophisticated um, criminal enterprise, um, but it shows that when you found, find an exploit or a hack, then it doesn't necessarily have to involve a rocket scientist. The Maas didn't do any of this themselves, but they knew people who could do this for them. All they had to do was they had to bribe a cinema employee to look the other way for a few hours while they borrowed the hard drive with the films on them and then the keys were issued automatically for all of these legitimate cinemas in China. But one amongst them was a rogue one taking advantage of the keys and certificates from a legitimate server um, to effectively imposter that server. And off that uh, rogue server came these pristine copies. So was the quality any good? Yes, the quality was pristine because let's not forget that you know most of the camcorder piracy takes place in cinemas, and it's very hard to uh, record off the big screen um, covertly, uh, or, you know, at a time when there's nobody else in there, which is why you get these low copies uh, that have either um, poor sound or, or, you know, unstable image. I remember once uh, a friend in Asia, this is many, many years ago, before the advent of digital, was watching a um, copy that he thought was legitimate on VCD. And until halfway through um, the uh, film, suddenly the image goes up and down, you hear, "hachu," And that's obviously when the pirate was sneezing. Uh, not holding the camera steady. But here you know you can you don't even need a cinema, you just need a white wall and you can fix um, the camera to it and afterwards they would use video editing uh, software to tweak and correct and sync the finished film file until it was uh, pretty much pristine.
0: So the Moz had a way to create digital video copies of high-demand new feature films. Next, they needed a way to
1: distribute them. So now they're in business. Um, Now they're able to get copies, like I said, by bribing a a cinema employee. He got paid between 75 and $150 U.S. per month to borrow a hard drive uh, for up to 10 films. And they would look at the uh, app of what were the popular upcoming releases. And they would take those uh, films. And it was even so low um, tech that they didn't even uh, get the pure digital file out of the server, but rather they camcorded it off a projection on a wall. So it really was um, a lo-fi type of piracy operation, but incredibly, incredibly effective. But digital opened up a whole new realm of being able to capture very pristine, high-definition copies of first-run films, and then making them available whether either as bootleg DVDs or distributing it via the internet. The Chinese, in this case, the uh, Two Horses Gang, found a third way, which I'm sure we'll get into, which makes the story even more fascinating.
0: The thing about illegal DVD sales is that they can be anonymous. You can employ people to sell them on street corners or in markets. You then fly under the radar of the copyright holders, the studios. Even in a tightly policed state such as China, pirated films do appear on shadowy websites or are traded on social media channels such as WeChat or QQ, which conveniently have built-in micropayment systems. But, like the Hollywood studios, the Two Horses gang wanted a very tight control over their newly minted counterfeit films.
1: So instead, they did something completely novel and unique for China. They took a franchise approach of uh, setting up a series of video parlor or micro cinemas that could show these films to paying customers. This is what's known as private cinemas in China.
0: Around this time, private cinemas or micro cinemas were taking off
1: throughout China. It's sort of like if you've been to a karaoke room, uh, as they are in Asia, especially when there's anything between two and 10 of you, um, you've got a a big monitor and you can order beer and you sit there and in your soundproof room and you sing away to your heart's content. That's what they did in China. So starting in about 2014, they started building these micro cinemas, which are effectively like a high-end home cinema with a comfortable recliner, and a big uh, LCD projector um, for a screen and good surround sound. And you rent them by the hour and you have access to a video jukebox where you can watch um, anything from you know, Game of Thrones to films that were released you know, in the last or maybe three months or earlier. A lot of these places initially were slightly shady. They would show things that were not legitimately available um, and including both TV shows and um, films. But as the industry grew, it, it also started to clean up its reputation. Today, there's an estimated 15,000 private cinema screens in China, and that's uh, slightly above the number of cinema screens. But of course, each one of the private cinema screens only seating between, you know, let's say, two to eight people. There are definitely legitimate private cinemas. There are uh, companies that are now investing and looking at um, making this a uh, well-established, well-run, totally uh, legal in terms of copyright respect, uh, alternative cinemas. It will not be for first-run films, um, but you have to remember that because of this control and the limited space on the big screens in China, there are lots and lots of foreign films, art house films, even Chinese films that do not get a regular distribution, which would be approved by the censors and the government. It's just they cannot find the space on the big screen. So this opens up a whole alternative market to them other than going directly to the consumers. So a parallel operation, but at the same time, what's in China thought of in some ways as the third generation of cinema going. So after single screens and the second generation multiplexes, This is the third iteration of cinema. And there are people who are looking at taking this concept in its legitimate format to the West.
0: Seeing this private cinema thing take off in China, the Moz decided to create their own shadow private cinema network.
1: And of course, they made it easy for anyone who wanted in. And they come in then, and what they do is they offer... a a McDonald's model effectively. I was like, right, here is how you build this uh, micro cinema. And what we're gonna charge you is, um, they had a a price list and an established business model. So very quickly, effectively, there's a monthly fee of about um, 400 US, I'll do everything in US dollars, 400 US dollars to be part of this affiliation will deliver you you'll get an encrypted hard drive for which you have to pay a fee for about 70 dollars which you can get back once it's recycled and then a usage fee as well for 15 bucks per month and a refund when you return the disc and so on and then you have to pay uh charge people an average of about 15 bucks per uh viewing which if you split it across two or four people it works out cheaper than cinema And then, obviously, they can make additional money by selling uh, drinks, concessions, snacks, food, that sort of thing that regular cinemas also make money from. Like the best criminal
0: organizations, they mirrored the legitimate organizations. The Moz set up their own
1: shadow franchise system. It was fairly um, streamlined, and then they had, obviously, a encrypted uh, chat channel where they could, um, you know, order the films, give feedback, let them know about upcoming releases. And as we pointed to earlier, they had strict codes of conduct. So even if uh, they were sent the film early, and they tended to vax the film early, if a film opened on a Friday morning in regular cinemas, they would not be allowed to start playing it in these um, illegal private cinemas until the afternoon of that same day,
0: then the Moz took things a step further. Like Hollywood, they wanted to protect their digital films, even if they had violated the copyright laws. Given that they could remove the digital watermark and the projector ID from the digital films they copied, they could then add in their
1: own. Even more interesting is that there was obviously no trust, and because there's no honor amongst thieves, between the franchise partners and the two horses gangs. so they would encrypt the film. And they would have their own watermarks in the films so that if those copies leaked online, they would be able to trace it back to the private cinema that got access to it. One might imagine these illegal private cinemas as they were the only
0: choice in, say, a small town. Well, that wasn't true. The Maas operated alongside the legitimate private theaters, blending in with the local environment, operating in plain sight.
1: Mostly these kind of things uh, were in existence alongside existing um, cinemas. So you'd have legitimate multiplexes, but if you wanted to go on a a date and you wanted a bit more uh, privacy, a bit more luxury, a bit more um, sophistication, then you'd rent a private cinema. Recently, some of these private cinemas have gotten into trouble because they had beds in them, they had showers, and, and guess what? Especially, mm-hmm. I suppose, to hor- horny teenagers just trying to get away from parents might be using them for more than just watching films. So um, there is um, a, a parallel network, really, that meant that these could be anything from a very sophisticated... Um, operation, a legitimate operation with um, an entrance and a lobby and area and a box office as fancy as a regular multiplex, just on a smaller scale. Two things that were built on the 13th floor in apartment complex, uh, where somebody took advantage of an empty space to furnish a few rooms with a projector of sound system and a video jukebox. But we know of at least uh, 330 private cinemas in 20 provinces across uh, China, for each one of these private cinemas, they could have multiple screens. There were many multiplexes. You have to remember by 2017 or 18, the number of private cinema screens overtook regular cinema screens in China. Not all high quality, you know, some of them were a little more than a sheet and a jukebox book. Some of them were as sophisticated, as luxury as you'd expect from a, a, you know, a home cinema, you know, Jeff Bezos or, you know, a football or ice hockey player in the top league. And of course, there's always a danger of taking something like this a bit too far. The security company or the technology company that they hired for all of this even try to take out a patent for their own kind of security solutions for these private cinemas. So they're reapplying all the security protocols that the legitimate cinemas had, but for their own kind of illegal pirate franchise operation.
0: So back to 2019. Two weeks before the Chinese New Year Festival, Ma Masong paid a theater engineer for hard drives containing three of the most anticipated films of that year.
1: Beginning of 2019, which was at the time of Chinese New Year, which in terms of film releases in China, it's Thanksgiving um, Christmas and you know the summer box office all rolled into one all the biggest films are safe for there so 2019 uh, Chinese New Year which is February um, 15th of February uh, they had three big releases including sci-fi epic The Wandering Earth and this is when things came to crunch and what happened then and this is karma catching up with you is that um, one of the franchisees discovered that there hadn't been an update on the um, pirate encryption software, and there was a loophole that enabled the films that were sent to him to be pirated. So he downloaded it and then sold it on to other private cinemas. Previously, the high-quality pirated
0: new releases were confined to the closed and heavily monetized Two Horses Gang private cinema network. Now, however, copies of the biggest films of
1: 2019 were available freely online it soon spread like wildfire because it was stored on a Baidu uh, cloud-sharing link. So before you know it, these films were all over the internet uh, being sold by um, for micropayments by apps and websites. And the two horses gang, the Ma and Ma, must have been watching sort of with despair of having lost control of their pirated goods because The Wandering Earth itself had been watched over five million times online before they got a takedown letter sent from the producer of the film. And that meant that pretty soon they started uh, tracking the franchisees. And from there on, in traditional law enforcement style, they worked their way up the food chain until they got to the uh, Two Horses gang. The 215
0: operation wasted no time. Within a month, they started arresting people involved.
1: They sent out a massive operation across multiple cities, not just multiple cities, but territories. This was a tech operation that spanned uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong, the Chinese mainland. Um, And um, something extraordinary like there were uh, in this operation known as 215, after the date of Chinese New Year, they arrested over 250 individuals. They confiscated 14,000 pieces of equipment. And I forget, there were hundreds of law enforcement officers involved in this. So again, it gives you a feeling for the scale of, of the operation and just how big it was. And again, uniquely Chinese, because nowhere else today is there this private cinema network, legitimate or you know not legitimate. So the interesting thing that happened since is obviously there was a, a trial, the producers um went on um, cameras and expressed their gratitude to the police. It was truly the biggest piracy takedown operation of all time anywhere in the world. The story would not have been possible were it
0: not for a lone engineer in the propaganda department in China.
1: I want to give a shout out because um, there was, um, you know, there was a real hero in this and uh, it is the engineer who um, actually, uncovered that um, first uh, pirate copy, as you said, of of Allied Juling. Uh, uh, I'm going to get his name right, but Juling Fen from the uh, Quality Control uh, Bureau of the Chinese, um, you know, Propaganda Department, and he's still out there. He's still surveying the internet for you know pirated copies and you know doing the hard. Uh, thankless job of, of trying to track down and you know prevent films from being stolen and, and being illegally shared and distributed. So while it's easy to um you know get caught up in, in the sort of gangster low-end gangster glamour of the two horses gang, it is the engineers and you know who are the true heroes of this because they designed the specification in the first place, which you know had it been unheard to would have prevented this. And it was an engineer who enabled uh, the culmination of this three-year hunt for Ghost Number One to succeed in taking down um, this piracy ring. So, and this really was one of the cases where really the Chinese authorities were the good guys, um, and they did a, the great job in terms of exposing this and bringing down the perpetrators. But of course, they by themselves cannot fix uh, what was inherently problem with early-generation software. So. In theory, we could see um, a ghost two or ghost number three or ghost number four. This is one of those nice stories that has good heroes and villains. Obviously, there are people who maybe, you know, were a little bit um, cutting some corners. Again, we're not going to point fingers or were a bit too eager to rush things uh, to the market. but again, at this point, you know, it's not about blame. It's not a, It's about sorting out. And what was interesting to me is after I published, uh, we published the story. Is I thought that there was going to be um, more attention to it. You know, like any journalist, you're vain enough to think that your story is going to be read and appreciate everybody. But there was pretty much a deafening silence that came out of uh, Hollywood after this. And this from a place that loves to shout about. Um, any uh, victories over pirates and want to highlight the damage that copyright theft does to the industry. But again, uh, this was a sensitive topic, and it's uh, a bit about that old saw about, you know, washing your dirty linen in public. So I hope that you know, we've been able, to, and I think we've been able to, to um, bring attention to what is still an important story and a great success story in, in preventing copyright theft, uh, while at the same time acknowledging that, heck, no system is completely foolproof, even something as well-designed, and it really is super well-designed as the Hollywood's Digital Cinema Initiative specification for moving from 35 to digital.
0: The story of Ghost Number One ended in 2019. But as with any Marvel motion picture today, there's always a scene after the end credits a coda. So, despite all the advanced digital piracy controls within DCI, digital piracy of pristine motion pictures unfortunately continues to this day. Which is why Patrick is presenting a talk at Sector in 2021.
1: And this is the reason we're talking about it today is that we've obviously had a pandemic which shut down cinemas, not just in China temporarily, but here in the U.S. But in the meantime, you know, we've seen the appearance of pristine, high-definition copies of first-run films appear on pirate sites again. And it has nothing to do with any ghost server. It has to do with Hollywood um, deciding on a new release strategy of films, one that would um, either bypass cinemas or go in parallel to a theatrical release and to put it online on premium video on demand or subscription services. So HBO Max, Disney Plus, Premier Access meant that films that previously came out in a shaky, bad pirated copy that was camcorder in the cinema, now literally minutes after it is released uh, you have a perfect high definition, maybe even 4K copy of uh, Black Widow or Jungle Cruise or you know Godzilla versus Kong, because the studios have decided that you know during the pandemic we're going to have to think beyond cinemas and we're going to test straight to uh, consumer releases. There was this
0: trend during the pandemic for new motion pictures to have a day and date release, which simply means in film terms that there was a simultaneous release of the film on multiple platforms, most commonly theater and home video. With the pandemic in full bloom, they were simply going to release the films online. Remember, a critical component of this anti-piracy technology was a close tie with the hardware digital projector. By removing the theatrical release, By going straight to online
1: streaming, they kind of neglected that critical part. What we're seeing, though, since is that there's been a bit of a U-turn. Warner Brothers has announced that HBO Max is not going to release uh, their big titles uh, day and date with cinemas from next year. And uh, Disney has said that they're not going to do any more of these releases uh, day and date after they got into trouble, obviously, with Scarlett Johansson suing them for lost earnings because box office diminished for Black Widow but also because films that were released exclusively in cinema like uh, marvel's shang chi or uh, free guy did so much better at the box office and they'll still get make money in digital releases to the home while at the same time there were no pristine copies uh, of those films floating around online because piracy is so much more difficult when there's only legitimate theatrical release
0: so The studios invested all this work in DCI and they worked on watermarking the films and creating digital certificates for the projection hardware. And then the studios said, oh heck, let's just release straight to video.
1: And they're somehow surprised that there was piracy? Yeah, I'm not sure they were surprised, but it's been pointed out to them numerous times. But we have to remember, there were different dynamics here. We're never going to get as Adam Aaron um, CEO of AMC and darling of the Reddit uh, day traders. Uh, you're not going to have a billion dollar opening weekend on a premium video on demand. Just not going to happen. You know, Bond is going to do much better by staying uh, true to cinema and waiting for theaters to be available to be open and rather than going via Amazon or anything else. So there's more money to be made in cinemas because people are well, for one thing, sick of streaming after, you know, however many months of lockdown, but because cinema is more than a way of consuming films. It is a social experience. It is something we go out and do together. It's something we enjoy together, just like we're not going to stay home and keep having food delivered to us once restaurants are open. So that's why cinema lives on. I want to thank Patrick for his
0: original reporting on this and for updating his story for his presentation in 2021. Digital piracy isn't about sticking it to the man. It's really about hurting the little guy, the construction worker, the stunt driver, the people you see in the end credits as you are waiting for that final scene in any Marvel movie. Those are the people who are the victims. Remember that the next time you think it's fun to download a first-run feature film for free. And, as a side note, be sure to run some antivirus on your digital device after you do so. Remember, often you get what you pay for, And malware, it's always free. Let's keep the conversation going. DM me at Robert Vimosi on Twitter, or join me on Reddit or Discord. The deets are available at hackermine.com. The Hacker Mind is brought to you every two weeks, commercial-free, by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mind, I remain your one-time cinema auteur, Robert Vimosi.